This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hello and welcome to Saver, production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about August Escoffier. Yes, another biography in deliciousness. Yes. Um, was there any particular reason this was on your mind? Again, I was just feeling real ambitious towards the end of last year, and I was planning out some episodes, and um, I was trying. We, we hadn't done a biography episode in a minute, and I was like, who who have I been thinking about? Uh, who have I been putting off talking about? And Escoffier was kind of top of the list. Mm-hmm. It is indeed very ambitious. Uh, he was very <laughs> ambitious. Mm-hmm. This episode's very ambitious. Mm-hmm. A lot of people... Have a lot to say about this person. Uh-huh. And we have talked about him before in several episodes. I would say you could see our episode on French cuisine, uh-huh. specifically um, bouillon. I believe we talked about him, gelatin. Yeah. Uh, um, related uh, canning, maybe, uh, or or the can opener, I suppose, is our big yeah. episode on canning. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The can opener. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Still struggle. Still Still struggle for me. Still traumatized. Oh, (laughs) goodness. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You can also see our past biography episodes. But yeah, this one is a lot and very fun. It goes places. It does. It does. (laughs) Um, But I suppose that brings us to our question. I suppose so. Escoffier. What or who is it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, um, and forgive my French, y'all. Uh, uh, Georges Auguste Escoffier. Sure, let's call. Let's say that. Great. Um, he was a chef, restaurateur, and writer from France who came up in the late 1800s and really changed the way that restaurants work, um, from the experience of dining to kitchen management. And furthermore 
popularized French cuisine as an international standard of luxury. Um, he was running some of the most influential high-end kitchens of the turn of the century, and he made them hierarchical, efficient, clean, and organized. He was he was just like the right person at the right places at the right time to, to change the commercial culinary world. Um, and through a trickle-down effect, to change the way that people eat or, or perhaps the way that people aspire to eat in Europe and the rest of the West. He was so passionate about good food. Um, and for as much as he was a showman, he was also meticulously practical um, and seemed to really want everyone to eat well. Uh, he also inspired a lot of loyalty in his kitchen staffs because he was firm but calm and, and really took care of his people. Um, he is the grandfather of fine dining. Um, it's, it's like if you've, if you've ever been frustrated going to a nice restaurant and having no idea how to pronounce half the menu because you don't speak French, um, it's his fault. <laughs> I feel like this is coming from a personal place, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, I know what that is, but I know I'm going to say it wrong and it's going to be embarrassing. <laughs> oh, jeez. You know, half the dining experience is being embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that should be the case. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. Okay, well, uh, what about the nutrition? Don't eat dead people. Um, to, uh, Ooh. Or, I mean, I, I guess don't eat living people either. Ooh. You know, I can't tell you what to do. <laughs> Interesting, Lauren. <laughs> I shall file that away for later thought. Goodness. <laughs> um, okay, so we don't have too many numbers for you. But I have to say, when I first started researching this, the first note I typed was, how many societies can there possibly be? <laughs> because there are so many organizations and societies Dedicated or inspired by Escoffier. Named after, yeah. Yep. Yes. It's a bunch. And most of the Google results, when you're just kind of getting into it before you really start refining your search terms, are, are about all of those organizations. And uh, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love a good fun with search terms episode. And this was definitely one of those. Indeed. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, a couple numbers for you. Um, Scoffier trained over 2,000 chefs during the course of his career, which was about 60-ish, 60-ish years. Um, one of them wound up opening a museum in the home where Escoffier was born. And it serves as a, as a history of the like culinary technologies of Escoffier's time and also a research center on the, uh, the greater world of gastronomy. It has a collection of over 3,000 menus from the 1820s through today. Ooh. Um, okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, uh, we do have quite a history for you. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, and we are going to get into that as soon as we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. 
And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm -hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip together. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go, and I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, Time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Okay, so Auguste Escoffier was born in 1846 in the Provence region of what's now France. I don't know why I put what's now France, because that was kind of recent. But anyway, (laughs) France. Um, When he was 12 or 13, I saw a couple different ages. Uh, He began apprenticing at a restaurant that his uncle owned in nearby Nice. Um, Over the next seven years, he really honed his skills, and people took notice And he was taken on at the restaurant over at Le Petit Moulin Rouge in Paris. He was their assistant roaster, apparently. Assistant roaster? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Yes, again, you can see our episode on French cuisine. But at this time, being a chef wasn't really seen as anything to write home about. It wasn't necessarily respected. Haute cuisine didn't exist yet. Um, Most people... Ate at home unless they were traveling. There weren't the standards around the industry yet. Uh, so it could be dirty. It could be chaotic. It could be unorganized, often dangerous, and very brutal places to work in. Escoffier was instrumental in changing that whole thing. Um, he was in part inspired to insert some organization in his kitchens after briefly serving as an army chef after the start of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. During this time, he learned about the importance of canning in terms of preserving foods and keeping those foods fresh. Um, He started experimenting with different methods of canning with meats and sauces and innovated a way to store tomato sauce so that it would stay fresh in champagne bottles. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was when canning was still a relatively new technology. It had only come about around 1810 or so. Right. Um, And he also observed how effective military organization was in terms of a kitchen. 
um, of coordinating and working together to get things done. So what he eventually came up with is often called the brigade system. Mm -hmm. Yes. So once the war ended, Escoffier returned to the kitchen and started to implement the things he observed during his time with the military. Chefs were assigned roles, locations, responsibilities, and answered to supervisors, people who ensured that all the pieces were working together in harmony. And through this, Escoffier came up with the titles and roles that we still use today in a lot of places, like sous chef, saucier, and chef de cuisine. Apparently, he had very specific rules that were meant to lower stress, uh, including no yelling and no alcohol. From a couple sources I read, a lot of times people would just drink throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his staff allegedly called him Papa, and he really fought for their rights when it came to things like benefits. After members of his staff died on the Titanic, uh, he had designed the menus for the mm-hmm. Titanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he campaigned for widows and children of them to be taken care of. So, yes, by the mid-1870s, he was back at the Petit Moulin Rouge, and he also bought a food company and opened a restaurant in the very posh Cannes. Um, He left the Petit Moulin Rouge to run other kitchens around Paris in 1878, which is also the year that he married uh, Delphine Daphis? Daphis? (laughs) I don't know, Lauren. (laughs) Um, Well, either way... The story goes that he won his wife's hand in a game of pool, Um, and she was a poet, and she left him after the birth of their third child. Uh Um, Lots of drama, I see. Yes. Yes. Well, after this, he started collaborating with the founder of the Ritz-Carlton Hotels, Cesar Ritz. Ritz was managing the Grand Hotel in Monte Carlo and hired Scoffier on in uh, 1884 under the advice of the head chef there. In 1890, Ritz became the manager of London's Savoy Hotel, and he named Escoffier the head chef of the kitchen. The Savoy was, and um, and still is, a kind of like ridiculously luxury hotel. Uh, both Ritz and Escoffier had worked in other high-end hotels around Europe, but the Savoy was this brand new, like gleaming beacon of end-of-century modernity. And they were brought there with salaries in the equivalent of millions of dollars. Um, Ritz's motto was, the best is not too good. (laughs) Um, Well, yes, (laughs) the Savoy, perhaps because of that, had a lot of high-profile, famous patrons. And to build up the profile of the hotel and his own, Escoffier started coming up with his own dishes to make the hotel's restaurant unique. According to popular lore, he created the Peach Melba in honor of guest Nellie Melba, an opera singer. I feel like we've talked about this story before. I think so, yeah. I think it was somehow in the Pavlova episode. I don't know. Uh, listeners, you let us know. I feel like we've talked about it before. Um, the story goes he also came up with Cherry's Jubilee for Queen Victoria's Jubilee, which is one of those funny things I read where it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and Dauphine potatoes for the French court of Dauphine. Yes. Yeah, this was the kind of place where, like, if you had the money, old or new money, um, you could be treated like royalty. Um, Like, want to throw a roulette-themed dinner party for 30 of your closest friends for a little under two grand a head because you just won a bunch of money playing roulette and betting on red? 
yeah, they can do that for you. Um, <laughs> they draped a private dining room in red. They put red shades on the lamps, set the tables with giant bouquets of red geraniums, dressed the waiters in red ties and gloves, and put red buttons on their shirts. The dinner menu included consomme of red partridge, foie gras and paprika gelée, and lamb with red bean puree. Wow. Yeah. And, and, I, and I really, like, want to emphasize here that this was a very new thing. Um, you know, up until this time, the only people who had access to this kind of food were probably royalty. Um, but the Industrial Revolution was changing the way that money worked. And so for the first time, you had these, like, international celebrities and um, and moguls who who had the money and what they wanted to do was kind of replicate the wild feasts of medieval Europe. And people like Escoffier were such history nerds <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and and so excited to put on parties like this um, at Ritz as well. Yeah, that it was. And both of them had come from from working class families, too. So it's I don't know. It's it's really it was what a time to be alive. Yes. And and we're going to make this point throughout, but definitely left an impact, um, Escoffier and his influence. But mm-hmm. um, we must mention uh-huh. uh, both Escoffier and Ritz were fired from the Savoy on charges of extortion, and it caught international attention. It eventually caught international attention. It was so scandalous that they kept it quiet. The hotel kept it quiet for almost a century. Um, Okay. In 1897, the hotel's profits dropped by like 40%. The kitchen was running at a loss despite being busier than it ever had been. And so the hotel ran an audit and turned up around the equivalent of a million dollars in wine and booze having been comped to guests including some potential investors and a new competitor to the Savoy that Ritz and Escoffier were planning, um, London's Carlton Hotel. Furthermore, uh, Escoffier had worked out an embezzlement scheme with some of the Savoy's suppliers, um, and he wound up making like the modern equivalent of over $2 million in commissions over the course of about 10 years. None of this came out publicly until, I guess, an intern at the hotel came across signed confessions from Ritz and Escoffier in 1983. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the intern was an anonymous informant who, like, left the confessions on the desk of this reporter working at The Observer. <laughs> and when the reporter wrote about it, he gave he gave the informant the name Deep Palette. Oh my gosh, why is this not a movie? This is ridiculous. (laughs) I absolutely want the movie about this. Uh, (laughs) Apparently, apparently the pair were forced to sign these confessions when they tried to sue for unfair termination. Wow. Wow. What? (laughs) Love it. Love it. Um, But yeah, basically the, the pair got away with it, like socially speaking, because the Savoy's board and shareholders were so dang embarrassed that it had happened that they didn't want anybody to know about it. Um, <laughs> also, apparently, Ritz had dirt on the Prince of Wales, and uh, the Savoy didn't want that coming out. Again, this was right around Victoria's Jubilee, and they they didn't want to, like, 
cause scandal for royalty. Again, where is this movie? (laughs) Telling you. It is very funny. A lot of the sources you look up for Escoffier don't mention this at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the ones that do mention it are, whoo, juicy, juicy. Um, (laughs) But yeah, um, hotel management was in a tizzy over the whole thing. Like, they were afraid that the kitchen staff were so loyal to Escoffier that they would riot when they learned that he had been fired. Like, they had police on hand to help keep the peace. Uh, a bunch of the staff did wind up following Escoffier when he went. Wow. Wow. Um, well. <laughs> From there, Escoffier continued to work with Ritz, uh, including at the Ritz Paris. In 1899, they opened the Carlton Hotel in London. He continued to exert influence, and not just in the kitchen, but in the front of house too, including the now common practice of ordering a la carte. Um, because previously, uh, all the food items came out at once. So this instituted a new thing where the dishes started coming out as they were ordered and guests ordered off a menu. It's it's strange to think about these things we take for granted so mm-hmm. much these days. But totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during lunch service, he could serve 500 plates an hour, I read. Yeah. He had a team of 60 cooks there. I also read he lobbied to make it legal for women to dine in public. I couldn't find too much about it, but I would love to dig into that Yeah, oh, more yeah. at a later date. <laughs> sure, sure, right. Because the practice of women dining in public was, yeah, it was certainly socially and sometimes legally not allowed um, mm-hmm. at this time. Especially in certain places, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, he was always looking to promote French products. And at the Carlton, he imported like French asparagus and duck and peaches and butter, some 4,500 pounds a month. That's 2,000 kilos of butter a month. Whoa. <laughs> uh, and tinned tomatoes. He heckin' loved a tomato sauce. Um Legend has it that he sort of tricked a ballroom of 600 diners into eating frog's legs, which were, like, not a popular protein in London, um, by calling them nymph's legs. (laughs) Yeah. And apparently the (laughs) aforementioned Prince of Wales was kind of in on it because he really liked frog's legs. I'm going to have to look up this Prince of Wales guy. I think I think the dirt was that he had been having this affair um, and Ritz as the hotel manager knew about it. Mm. And um, and the reason that the Prince of Wales followed them from the Savoy to the Carlton was that he didn't want to open himself up to blackmail from Ritz. Wow. <laughs> so maybe he was in on this nymph leg scheme because of fear of blackmail. <laughs> I I think I, I think it was I don't know. I I'm not entirely <laughs> it's all speculation. This is all speculation here. Uh I I do I do want to say speaking of um speculation, we we we've read in like one source that I'm not sure the quality of that Escoffier refused to ever learn English, even though he was working so much in London and later in the United States. Um because he didn't want it to negatively influence his cooking. Yep. <laughs> he was like, if I start learning English, I'll start to think like the English, and I cannot have that. Yes. <laughs> the most French thing I've ever heard of in my life. And I love it. 
Um, I, I also, from reading about his work during this time, um, got the idea that he was an absolute micromanager. Um, like, he designed every menu, oversaw every service, like, racked the kitchen every night to take stock and prevent waste. Um, and it is really difficult to express, like, exactly how posh and popular and influential all of this was. Um, like Ritz and Escoffier were, were building a new idea or, or, or ideal, maybe, um, of, of luxury and service in hospitality. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't all that Escoffier helped innovate, especially in that area. Um, he was key in designing how kitchens worked on 20th century transatlantic cruises. He would apparently usually go on every new ship's first voyage to make sure that the kitchens were up to standards. Um, so I guess it's lucky that he wasn't on the Titanic. Ooh. Yikes. Um, <laughs> he ran the kitchen on an enormous ocean liner designed for guests of Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany called the SS Imperator? Imperator? Who Imperator. Knows? I don't know. It's probably very grand sounding. Um, well... <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of, uh, Wilhelm apparently called Escoffier the king of chefs and the chef of kings and allegedly said of him, I am the emperor of Germany, but you are the emperor of the chefs. Wow. Yeah. Um, also, no big deal. He helped <laughs> modernize the five mother sauces. We've definitely talked about this before. Um, but briefly... Escoffier's predecessor, Antonin Karim, had outlined four grand sauces of French cuisine, and these were bechamel, espagnol, velouté, and allemande. Escoffier went on to drop the allemande from this whole thing, since it was related to velouté and added tomato sauce, yes, and hollandaise. Mm. Uh, yes. Mm. During World War I, he kept running kitchens, and he was a prolific author as well. He published Le Guide Culinaire in 1903, Le Livre des Menus in 1912, a monthly chef's magazine that ran from 1912 to 1914, and Le Mémoire Culinaire in 1919. And Le Guide Culinaire in particular was hugely influential. Of his alleged 600 egg recipes, <laughs> it had 256 of them in my mind when I saw 600 egg recipes. Couldn't fat. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I think I've got four. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yep. Oh, wait, maybe five. Okay. Any, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but cool. Cool. Uh, yeah. And this is still a, like considered an essential like chef's cookbook today. Um, mm -hmm. Also, during the war, uh, he organized aid for the families of his cooks who were enlisted. Right. Yes. And uh, he was the first chef to receive a French Legion of Honor distinction um, in 1918 and was uh, pr pr promoted, raised. I'm not sure of the terminology. He was he was raised from a from a knight in the Legion of Honor to an officer in uh, 1928. Hmm. <laughs> He was a big proponent of several charitable causes. During the 1890s, he donated unserved food to the Little Sisters of the Poor. He ran all kinds of fundraisers, including those centered around aiding retired chefs. In 1928, he helped found the World Association of Chefs Societies and served as the first organization president. 
He uh, retired, heavy scare quotes, to Monte Carlo in 1920, um, but yeah, continued to travel for another 10 years or so to attend hotel openings, uh, cooking competitions, and other events. And he continued writing, um, aiming three cookbooks toward home cooks of more modest means, which at that point in his life, he was. Uh, he Apparently, he was really bad at managing money and uh, never never really had that much uh, towards towards the end of his life. Hmm. Uh, he died on February 12th, 1935, at the age of 88. Uh, and his wife had died just days prior, um, and the pair had only just recently reunited. Yeah, uh, I think she had been living in Monte Carlo pretty much that whole time. Um, and he, yeah, he he joined her there when he retired. Um, but yeah, it's it's a... Uh, it, it seems like an interesting story. Uh, a novelist uh, recently wrote a semi-fictional romance about their last decade there together um, called White Truffles in Winter. Ooh, yeah. good name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but Escoffier's legacy does live on. Uh, a fraternity of male chefs, restaurateurs, and hotel owners formed in 1936 what they called Les Amis d'Escoffier Society, still exist. Um, a sister society made of women formed in 1959 called Les Dames des Amis d'Escoffier. And in 1973, Les Dames d'Escoffier New York opened. Again, this is something I would love to come back to um, because kind of the history of, at first, like, there weren't women that much in this industry or if they were, they weren't recognized and couldn't uh -huh. be in these things. And so the steps of what separated these two groups um is interesting yeah yeah yes um yes, but there's a lot of them now <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh yeah oh and i and i and i wanted to put in um about the money situation um he apparently supported um uh and paid for the education of like a really large extended family and uh, of his and so um so that was part of why it wasn't just like oops I was gambling or something like that but like it was more yeah like he was just giving a lot of money away to people um yeah I mean part of his legacy too he was really invested in people being able to have lives in this industry yeah uh, yeah and it is very it it, it took me aback how much he has had influence at last um, that I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's just how I thought, like, restaurants always were. Yeah. Um, no, it was basically created um, during his time. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, we've talked about this before in some of our, like, holiday-related episodes um, about Thanksgiving and, and, like, Christmas dishes. But, um, but a lot of our concept of um traditional dining comes from this era and mm -hmm. uh, he was so influential during this era that yep yeah. that's just what it is yeah and it kind of cracks me up how many times when we'll travel together for savor or otherwise um and i do my anything where i'm like where do we go <laughs> and it'll <laughs> like a hotel will pop up um and it will be, like, this experience that we described in here, essentially. So I, I feel like that was also, he had a big hand in that. 
Oh yeah, um, yeah. And it's still around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh he he was also a mm, co co-director maybe of um of the Ritz like corporation around mm-hmm. the time. So um yep, yep. <laughs> you know, this is a very um selfish thing, but one of my one of my regrets about the pandemic, Lauren, is that hmm. I had a free room to the Ritz Carlton. Oh, um, it's a long story as to how, but I had a free room, <laughs> and the pandemic comes in and I lost it. But apparently, I was going to get like free drinks and free food and all the stuff. I was so excited. Oh um, man! Well, maybe one day. Maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's what we have to say about Escoffier for now. I think it is. Uh, we do. Uh, we would love to hear from you if uh, if you. I, I don't know how many of y'all listeners are are in the industry, but um, mm-hmm. but but if you have any kind of experience with the brigade style of of, of kitchen management or. Um, or anything like that, we would love to hear about it. Um, and we do have some listener mail already prepared for you. Uh, but first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm -hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip together. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go. And I'm hungry. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with Alistair. Sauce. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. I didn't want to shout at you. <laughs> so. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. yeah. I yeah. try to make these nice. Yeah. Um, yes. We were just having a, a conversation I'm sure we'll revisit uh, about shouting in kitchens. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because Escoffier, mm-hmm. right, you know, like, like, like meticulous, militaristic a little bit, but also quiet. No shouting. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to shout at people. No. Unless you can't, they need to hear you, but not like in anger. Sure. No. Um, anyway. All right. All right. Uh, Barbie wrote, as always, your episode about special holiday food marketing cracked me up. Hmm. I don't buy those things. And since I haven't shopped in a grocery store in three years, I haven't seen them on the shelves. Hmm. You asked about holiday meal stories, and I remembered a favorite of mine. I got married the year after my father died, and the first Thanksgiving I hosted with my mother, my husband, and his two teenage children was important to me. I wanted it to be a great occasion for all of us in this blended family, so I asked each one to tell me what they wanted most to be included in the holiday meal. Mm -hmm. I wanted to include special foods that my husband and his children treasured from the family they had before me and that they would be disappointed to not find on the table. Mm -hmm. The answers included some things I might not have included. (laughs) Black olives to stick on their fingers was the one that was new to me. Uh, sweet potatoes with marshmallows was one <laughs> was one that one of them loved and didn't appeal to me at all. Uh, finally, I asked my mother with whom I had celebrated Thanksgiving for 40 years. Her answer was, you have to have a green vegetable. You have to have a yellow vegetable. And you have to have a salad. I never <laughs> did find out. What she really wanted, only what she thought was obligatory. Hmm. This year, my husband and I celebrated together with no family or friends to complicate things. (laughs) Since we're not eating in restaurants, our choices were takeout or cook at home. Restaurant takeout for Thanksgiving was full meals, including a lot of food we don't like, so we chose cooking at home. Our dinner was a 12-pound roast turkey put in the oven early a.m. and ready to eat by noon. Pre-made mashed potatoes, just put them in the microwave, Hmm. and homemade gravy. Dessert was Ben & Jerry's ice cream and luscious flavors. We had one meal of turkey, mashed potatoes, and gravy, one meal of leftovers, one meal of turkey sandwiches, and turned everything else into turkey soup with vegetables for the freezer for later. It took a lot of years, but we finally figured out how to make the holidays exactly what we want. May 2024 be a great year for you. Oh. (laughs) I mean, honestly, like, okay, first of all, I do love you asking what people want and oh, getting these responses yes. you weren't anticipating. I mean, I mean, a, a, that's so sweet and totally, totally understandable. Like, of course, like, like holidays are, can be so like, like stressful and it's all new and you're trying to, you know, to, to write, to make it so good. Um, but yeah, like. <laughs> Black olives to stick on fingers is excellent. <laughs> That is such a specific age. That's an amazing <laughs> teenage kid response. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, but also like like your 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 mother's equally <laughs> cantankerous kind of yes. or like or cantankerous is the wrong word. What am I looking for? Like um confounding? I yeah, yeah. just like it's green veg, yellow veg, salad. <laughs> Which 
hats off to her because my usually my holiday traditions have one. They have like a potato based thing, maybe, but one vegetable, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) So Mm -hmm. there you go. That's pretty good. Um, But yes, confusing for sure. Um, (laughs) But also, it's very nice. Like, I love that you found. You know, this is what you do. That yeah, sounds great. It's what you want. Yeah. No, <laughs> exactly. No need to no need to muck it up with anything else. Yeah. 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 I love it. Uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. No, now now I just want mashed potatoes and gravy, but I I mean I guess I yes. usually want that. Mm. <sighs> okay. Um Kate wrote I'd been planning to write to you for a while after listening to your Fanny Farmer episode. Then yesterday I heard your call for non-Western perspectives on three meals a day uh, in the listener mail at the end of the Rosewater episode, which nudged me to actually sit down and write. I'm Canadian and grew up with the idea of three meals a day, a breakfast, lunch, and supper, with the last meal of the day usually being the heaviest, except when visiting grandparents for the weekend when we would have dinner at noon on Sunday before all of the aunts, uncles, and cousins would drive home in the afternoon. My thinking about meals shifted, though, when I lived in Tanzania in East Africa for three years. A heavy meal is eaten by Tanzanian families right before bedtime, so when you wake up in the morning, you're still feeling full from the night before and not in need of breakfast right away. This is a good thing, especially if you're living in an area with no electricity or running water. It takes a lot of energy to fetch water, build a fire, or light a charcoal stove, clean the dishes from the night before, and boil water. Tea is often taken mid-morning, consisting of strong tea with lots of sugar and milk when available, along with some sort of snack, uh, chapati, um, mandazi? Never heard of that one. Uh, It's deep-fried bread dough, uh, uh, they add, Uh, roasted peanuts, or an egg. And then a heavy meal is eaten in the early afternoon, like 1 to 3 p.m., to keep you going until the bedtime meal. I tended to keep my North American eating habits of breakfast, lunch, and dinner when I was at home, but when I was visiting Tanzanian friends, I adapted to the Tanzanian meal cycle. And I also learned that I was considered to be a better hostess when I had Tanzanian house guests if I served a large meal mid-afternoon and shifted supper hour much closer to bedtime. In terms of Fanny Farmer, um, this is the cookbook in my family, on my mother's side, and I loved learning more about it in your episode. I wasn't even aware of joy of cooking until I was a fully-fledged adult. My granddad always said that he liked Fanny Farmer because it assumed no kitchen knowledge, so if he needed to look up how to boil beans, he could look it up in Fanny Farmer and she would tell him. The first time I ever roasted a chicken, I looked it up in Fanny Farmer, then called my mother to confirm that Fanny Farmer was correct. The only stipulation, though, is that it has to be a pre-1979 edition, that is before Marion Cunningham came on as editor. Apparently, some of the best recipes were left out of newer editions. Though, since this is received wisdom from my elders, I couldn't tell you which recipes they were referring to. Granddad loved secondhand stores, and any time he came across an older edition of Fanny Farmer, he picked it up to give to one of his grandchildren. I have a 1965 Bantam paperback edition, now held together with an elastic band. I still refer to it the couple times a year that I roast a chicken, and I love owning a cookbook that includes the following instructions— Modern markets sell poultry ready to cook so that the old and tedious task of plucking and cleaning a bird is over for most of us. However, the United States Department of Agriculture and State Extension Services have bulletins describing the process and also telling how to cut up a bird for fricasseeing or broiling. If all the feathers have not been removed, pull them out with tweezers or a small sharp knife and burn off the fine hairs over the gas flame or with burning paper. 
Though, related to the previous topic, I will say that getting a chicken from the chicken coop to the dinner table is one skill that I acquired in Tanzania, even if I don't have occasion to practice it here in Canada. (laughs) Oh, well, so much to say. I love, (laughs) I am loving hearing about these different, these alternatives to our typical three meals a day that we talked about. I think it's fascinating. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, th- and this makes so much sense, right? You know, just yes. like, yeah, like like light light breakfast, uh, big midday meal, and then heavy dinner. That sounds terrific. Yes, it does. <laughs> Although I will say I recently have been having a big lunch, and I've noticed that it tires me out in oh, a way huh. I wasn't anticipating. Um but it could be because I'm new to it. This I just find this um, so, so interesting. So please, listeners, keep these coming. Yeah. And hearing about this mm-hmm. and about kind of the foods that are typical for these meals. Mm-hmm. Um, also, yes, all of the stuff about cookbooks that you've written in <laughs> is amazing. Oh, um, yeah. I love that. I, I, You know, I'm almost on board with your grandfather. I love a book where they'll just be like, look, I don't know anything. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> Explain it to me like I'm five. Yeah. Just exactly. just, just front to back. Assume I know nothing. Uh, yes. And let me know what's up. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Right. I, I didn't need to know the thing about uh, chicken feathers um, or this fine hairs. Um, but mm-hmm. because I am so completely divorced <laughs> from the reality <laughs> of proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, true, though. Like, that is part of the charm of reading a cookbook from before, like, where we've become so modernized. Yeah. And yeah. Industrialized. It, it, it is. I think I think I talked about it in Joy of Cooking episode, but my mom will just flip through and read cookbooks. Like, oh, she's yeah. She's not necessarily looking for a recipe if she finds one then sure yes yeah but she's kind of just reading them oh yeah no um, I, I i do that too yeah um i uh i'm setting up my new home and uh and kind of figuring out where everything goes and uh one of my bookcases like a kind of big one um the one that used to live in producer jerry's office um oh, <laughs> in, in our old nice. offices uh <laughs> wound up in my dining room and um it, it is I'm not gonna say like like brimming over, but it's full up with my collection of cookbooks. Um <laughs> which I love it. is wild. I didn't I <laughs> I didn't know that I had that many. <laughs> that is the thing about moving is you're like, oh <laughs> mm-hmm. it puts things into a bit of perspective. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's fun. That's fun. Um, I've actually been thinking about doing maybe a shorter episode, maybe not, about mm-hmm. just um, the kind of those award-winning recipes that we look back on now and are like, what? What is it talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but it totally makes sense when you put it in context of the time and everything. Yeah. Um, but cookbooks and companies publishing those cookbooks or publishing pamphlets or stuff, or stuff like that, that, that was very a big part of that um, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in it so maybe maybe <laughs> <laughs> um, yes uh, but 
In the meantime, thanks to both of these listeners for writing in. If mm-hmm. you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's the other one. Uh, at SaverPod, and we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.